0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the AABIP podcast. This is your host, Abhinav Agrawal, an assistant professor at the Zucker School of Medicine at Hofstra Northwell. During the podcast episodes, we discussed unique and often controversial topics in IP. The topics discussed often do not have an high-quality evidence base and we seek the opinion of our invited experts to learn their approach to specific clinical scenarios. The views expressed are exclusively those of the speaker, and are not necessarily endorsed by the ABIP. Today, we are going to discuss smoking cessation, a topic that is not only important in the field of IP, but to all pulmonologists. To discuss this further, we have today with us Dr. Viren Kohl, who is the Division Chief of Pulmonary Medicine at Krause Health and an Assistant Professor at Sunny Upstate University. Welcome, Viren.
1: Avi, how are you? Thanks for having me.
0: Of course, thank you, and welcome to the podcast. Before we start, do you have any conflicts of interest that you want to disclose? Conflict-free and ready to discuss this important topic. That's great. Thank you. So let's dive right into it. So as an interventional pulmonologist and and as pulmonologist, you know, when I see patients, 70% of the patients tell me that they want to quit smoking. So what do you do when someone seems committed? Do you let them quit by themselves? Do you give them an aid? How do you approach these patients?
1: Abhi, mean, so the key to a successful smoking cessation is knowing your patient. I, I truly believe that the 5A model is always successful in this. And I'll focus on the assessment part, which you know focuses on two aspects, which is willingness and dependence. So the willingness, you already mentioned, the patient is willing and they want to take the next step, and which is often the difficult part of uh, quitting smoking. So what I suggest is starting off with understanding the level of dependence. Uh, you can use batteries like the Fagenstrom test, which is easily available, and there's a shorter version of the test. And secondly, assessing and talking to them about what part of the dependence they feel maybe the more sort of harder aspect to deal with. This is the physiological aspect where they start getting the health adverse effects from quitting, where they get you know, the physical as manifestations of withdrawal, the severity, or is it a behavioral dependence, you know, eating, uh, then going out to smoke or smoking in the morning or smoking with friends. And that can then be used to ask them, how, what, what can we help you? Do you think you'll be able to quit completely cold turkey or something called as nicotine fading, where you sort of replace, they, they cut down on their smoking slowly, or do you give them nicotine replacement therapy? So it's, it's a conversation. It is definitely a conversation.
0: That's right. I think that's extremely important is to start that conversation because once the patient has you know uh, told us that he wants to quit smoking, starting that conversation is extremely important. So when you start this conversation and you're discussing AIDS with these patient and what we could do to help, what do you focus on? Do you focus on behavioral therapy, medication, the helplines or any other techniques, or is there a combination that we should be using of all of these or some of the
1: so I think a combination approach is the most effective, uh, and, and that that is evidence-based as well. And we're going to go a little bit more into details about medications shortly. However, I think about it in three different buckets. So you think about the medications, whether it's nicotine replacement or one of the uh other oral medications like Venklin or bupropion, the behavioral aspect is where I do tend to spend a lot of time. So is it is it again, right? Is it Aspects of activities that we can alter. Some of my patients have said, you know, it would be great if they could get help with stress mitigation. So, working with them to find the right psychological assistance, sometimes assistance with mental health, it's key to address all of these together, all of these components of uh, smoking you know, addiction together. And that is where quit lines actually come in very handy because they actually bring in both these components together. So I'll talk about the New York state quit line because that's where I'm based. And I know other states have similar facilities. You can sign up online. They will actually help you get sometimes even a counselor, a guided help. They'll be able to provide you sometimes according to what you're looking for, uh, quitting aids, uh, reading material, uh, motivational materials, such as the financial impact. And for different people, different aspects work. So giving them the opportunity
0: of having all of these resources at their disposal is key. Absolutely, thank you. That is helpful. And just dwelling a little bit more into that, in terms of behavioral therapy, you know, as clinicians, when we are talking to patients, are the aids available online, or for us, or for me as a clinician, how should I be discussing with the, this with our patients? Is there any helpful uh, aids available, or something that you recommend?
1: Yes. Yeah, so, talking about the quit lines, I think that is what I would. It, what That's what I do in my practice. So when I'm usually with the patient and I've decided to spend that visit with them specifically, say, for uh, smoking cessation, I, I sit with them. I actually go online uh, to the quit line for New York State and I explain to them what it is. Uh, Together, if they're willing and they're ready and they're interested, of course it has to be something that they're bought into. Uh, I actually sign them up and I get them acquainted with the website. I get them acquainted with the different materials. And then I ask them, which aspect here is going to help you? Like I said, is it talking to a peer mentor? Is it talking to somebody who has been through this, which could be me, which could be one of our psychologists? Is it more to help you with, a, say, a behavioral health element? Um, uh connecting them with that uh, some people let's say that they would like to do better in terms of physical activity uh, they might be limited because of say their COPD then is it is it, this is the right time to refer them to say pulmonary rehab so behavioral therapy is a wide umbrella which obviously includes cognitive behavioral treatments but understanding which behavioral behavioral aspect they think will be most impactful for them you we, we should
0: help them with that that's absolutely great. I think that's very helpful for me and I'm sure for our listeners as well. So these patients, I'm sure as you know, and as I have faced in clinical practice, just drawing from that, they may not be able to quit at one attempt, especially if they're you know, not getting uh, medical aids or aids in terms of medications. So is this ongoing conversation and how do you focus on that in terms of your visits? Is Because I'm sure you experience that this can you can have patients that quit and then tend to relapse or you have patients that are having a hard time. So help us a little bit with that.
1: So the key to understand is that every time a patient has a contact with healthcare, with the clinician, with a practitioner, it is an opportunity because even though 70% people want to quit smoking, it is important to remind them it can take up to eight to 10 attempts and that's okay. So if they take it upon themselves to quit and they're coming to you, sometimes they may feel bad that they have not been able to stay abstinent, but that's when you step in and say, that's okay. We are here. We're going to go through this together and this happens. So normalizing that this process is difficult is key. And that I think is the biggest take home point here is that every single healthcare contact, it's an opportunity to reinforce. It's not a one time thing. Uh, I oftentimes suppose because I do a lot of ILD work, I'll see ILD patients who I'm trying to convince to, you know, quit smoking. And if I find that they're starting to be willing, I will bring them back much sooner and create time so I can just have a visit for smoking cessation. We may not focus on the ILD that time. And I, that I found so, so impactful because they feel that we're meeting them at, at a time where they're expressing a vulnerability and they, they think that, okay, if the physician or the clinician or the practitioner is, you know, here to help me, I can do this. So key, remind them it's okay. It doesn't happen in one go. It's okay to keep trying.
0: Thank you. I think that's a very crucial point that you make, you know, having ourselves and making ourselves available for our patients and and uh, especially when they're most vulnerable when they're trying to quit. Thank you for that. So just switching gears a little bit in terms of medications, I know that there are some medications available over the counter like patches and gums and lozenges. And then there are some which are prescription medications like nasal sprays or inhalers. And then there are, of course, you know, the vernicyclin and the propion. So What are some of these important points about these medications that a clinician should know and any adverse effects that you would like to tell us about?
1: So why don't we start with the patch? So... Patches, typically the way to think about them when you're prescribing them is by the number of cigarettes. So if somebody smokes less than 10 cigarettes a day, you can start them off with a 14, there's a two-step process. So step one is a 14 milligram patch, which they use from week one to six, and then you go to step two, which is, you know, a reduced amount of time you give it from week seven to eight, okay? Okay. Similarly, if you smoke more than 10 cigarettes, then you basically start the 21 milligram patch, which goes from week one to six, and you slowly over the next four weeks taper them down. So more than 10 cigarettes is a st- three-step process starting from 21 milligrams less than 10 cigarettes is a two-step process. Um, it's a continuous delivery, which is why patches are often the backbone of the dual NRT uh, replacement. The key things to remember is that you should remember remind them to change the sites on the upper body or arms every morning, right? And don't use the same area for a week after you remove it. And do not cut patches because that actually le- leads to loss of nicotine and they become less effective. The side effects with patches, Abhi, are that you can get rashes in the areas of application and they can cause insomnia and oftentimes vivid dreams. And this is actually seen with uh, other things like gums as well. So... Those are the things to remember with the patch. Gums, on the other hand, come in two strengths. There's two milligram and four milligram strengths. They come with different flavors. Similar to patches, you ask them, if they take more than 25, they consume more than 25 cigarettes a day, you go with the higher strength, which is a four milligram patch. And if they consume less than 25 cigarettes, you go with the two milligram patch. Similar to uh, to gum, I apologize for that. Uh, similar to a patch, the nicotine gum from week one to six, you take one piece every one to two hour. Then you go week seven to nine, you decrease the frequency to every two to four hours. And then in the last two weeks, which is 10 to 12 weeks, you try going further down. You take one piece every four to eight hours. So you taper it down. But remember that at any point they should not be taking more than 24 pieces a day. So the way to use gums is to chew. You'll get this change in taste or tingling sensation. And when you get that, tell them to park the gum between their sort of teeth, the gum line and the cheeks and let it sit there. And once that taste goes away to bring it back into their mouth, chew again, they get the tingly sensation and you repeat it. So typically this gum can last 45 minutes an hour. And remind them that chewing at least nine to 10 pieces of gum is key and don't drink or eat anything else before or after 15 minutes or before or after uh, chewing a gum. Side effects besides the nicotine overload, which can cause, if you chew rapidly, which can cause you to have nausea, vomiting, lightheadedness. You can also get mouth soreness and jaw muscle pain from chewing for a long time. And a number of patients don't like that because sometimes these gums can be a little stiff in the beginning. So um, just tell, you know, just let them know about this so they come to expect it. The third over the counter agent, Abhi, that you brought up are the lozenges. Okay. Uh-huh. So uh, the lozenges are interesting because the dispensation should be thought about in terms of what is called as TTFC, which is the time to the first cigarette. And so if the time to the first cigarette is less than 30 minutes from waking up, you use the four milligram dose. And if they smoke the first cigarette, 30 minutes after waking up, then you go with a two milligram cigarette. My line to them is that don't chew it. You should suck it like hard candy because if you chew it, it'll basically disperse and all the nicotine's gone and you can actually get, again, the side effects just like you would from uh, um, chewing on a gum too quickly. Make sense? Absolutely. So these are the over-the-counter agents. And, oh, sorry, going back to the lozenges, you can again take twenty 20 of them a day. But ideally, shouldn't take any more than that. Right. So, Abhi, you have two agents which are not over the counter; they're prescription, and one's an inhaler, the other is a nasal spray. So, the inhaler is an interesting device because it is one of the few devices, right, which address the physical dependencies. Basically, um, a little, little stick-like device that you know they can sort of use as an inhaler, so that hand to mouth movement, which is the physical dependency is is addressed. And typically you basically use six to 12 cartridges a day for six to 12 weeks, and then you taper over the next 12 weeks. The nice thing with inhalers are that the plasma levels actually go up to about a third of that of cigarettes. So it does kind of mimic that effect a little bit. And The one device that has been actually, if you look at studies, has been shown to have higher quit percentage is the nicotine nasal spray. And the nasal spray, you actually can do one to two sprays per hour for six to 12 weeks. And typically the problem there happens is that you can get nasal and throat irritation with some sneezing and tearing. So those are the two devices. Now, when people ask me, which device do you use, what I say is that, The best and the most effective device is the one that a patient will use. And most of the times my trainees think that's funny, but I'm actually being very serious because whatever device the patient likes or is able to get, able to afford or is easily available to them and they're comfortable with where the side effects aren't too bothersome to them, that will be the most effective. So sometimes you end up having to trial a couple of different devices.
0: I think that makes sense because compliance is the key and uh, whatever our patients want and what will work best for them. I think that is the key.
1: So, Abhi, let's quickly talk about combination nicotine replacement therapy. So, combination nicotine replacement therapy is when you use two of these sort of uh, interventions together. And typically, that many people think about it, they think about the patch plus regimen, which is using a patch and a gum or patch and the lozenge right? And they typically are more effective than single nicotine replacement therapies because the patch gives that continuous nicotine level. And then when people get the craving, they can use the gum or lozenge to sort of replace that craving. And what I typically say, if you're going to use this combination, remind them to use that gum or that lozenge, the second NRT, before they get the craving. So it kind of eliminates that. But what I want to tell, uh, remind our listeners is that you can also use bupropion with a patch or with gum. So that is it's not just patch-based regimens. So keep that in mind. And I'll use that as a segue, Abhi, to talk about quickly about the two medications that we can use. One is bupropion and the other is verenicline. So bupropion, it's a non-competitive antagonist of uh, you know, nicotinic acetylcholine receptors, and it also has a little bit of dopaminergic antidepressant action. So the way you do it, and this is true for varinaclin as well, you start these medications a week or two before quitting, and then you quit. And then in case of bupropion, you start with the 150 milligram dosing in the morning for three days, and if they're tolerating it fine, you accelerate to 150 milligrams twice a day and you can use it for up to 12 weeks. And one key thing to remember is you do not need to taper when you're stopping for this particular indication. So if you're done, patient has been quitting, and they would like to stop, they should go ahead and stop it. Key caution to remember, it lowers seizure thresholds, um, bupropion, so be very careful using it in patients who have history of seizures, had traumas, patients are on other medications like antidepressants, antipsychotics, steroids. And theophylline, a lot of patients with COPD might be on theophylline, so keep that in mind. Also, if patients have mental health diagnoses or eating disorders or alcohol use concomitantly happening, be careful with the use there as well. And we should be monitoring these patients for uh, self-injurious behavior, educate them, and if they have family members involved in their care, let them know and educate them about this as well. The other common side effects that you should tell patients ahead of time is dry mouth, headaches, sleep disturbances uh, that can happen with bupropion. So varenicline or shantix as it's known, it's, that is the partial nicotine receptor agonist and antagonist. It's a very neat drug. So what it does is the agonist part, it releases dopamine and it, it you know gives you that feeling of smoking, but not to the degree that you would get with smoking. So it reduces the withdrawal. But, you know, it doesn't give you that spike. And at the same time, it blocks the nicotine binding to the receptor. So if you smoke, you don't get that feeling of reward. So I think it's a very neat drug. And um, the way you do it is you start it from day one to three with the 0.5 milligram daily. It comes in these prepackaged sort of directions. But you start day one to three with 0.5 milligrams daily. Day three to seven, 0.5 milligrams twice a day. And day eight onwards, you go to one milligram twice a day. The main thing to let the patients know about is nausea and insomnia, and that's why we have this slow up taper. Occasionally, um, patients can have bad dreams as well. Just a reminder that uh, Shantix has not been studied in patients uh, who are pregnant. We don't have a good understanding about use in childhood or in patients with other uh, psychiatric illnesses, so be very careful about that. And remember that it's cleared by the kidneys, so you do need to adjust the dose and renal insufficiency.
0: That was very thorough. And I think that was very helpful. And I'm sure it'll be extremely helpful for our listeners as it was for me. So do you use any nicotine, like, you know, the role of nicotine metabolites as biomarkers when you're selecting therapy for these patients?
1: So these are very interesting and, you know, upcoming area of research. Um, the Schnoll lab and the Schnoll group has been working a lot in this. And if I had to summarize what we understand so far is this, that, so nicotine is metabolized uh, through the CYP system, right? The CYP system. And you've it's broken down to cotinine and the to 3-hydroxycotinine. So uh, you basically use uh, what is called as an NMR or or nicotine metabolite ratio of 3-hydroxycotinine to cotinine to understand how nicotine is being metabolized in different people. Without going into excruciating details, We understand that some people are slow metabolizers of nicotine and others are normal or rapid metabolizers of nicotine. And if you look at, and you can use to, uh, you can use uh, this to understand how people will respond. Uh, So patients who are the, you know, reduced activity SIP metabolizers, they are likely to smoke for shorter durations. They are more likely to quit smoking and then hold on to the um, abstinence. Uh, in terms of where this becomes very helpful for application is that there's data to show from the SNOL study in 2009 that, you know, the smokers, uh, so if you run ver, and actually even be propion, you are better... Uh, They're better utilized for sort of quitting in the fast metabolizers group, which I think is eventually going to be something we'll be able to use in a real term. Right now, there's some challenges with this because, you know, the the genotyping is not easily available. It's complex. It's, you know, the costs are high. And then we haven't identified all the uh, variants. And more importantly, we also don't know the variations in these sort of metabolizing profiles across different, say, Um, ethnicities. So while those sort of challenges are being worked through, I do think that eventually we'll be able to tailor your nicotine replacement sort of plan um, using these uh, biomarkers. So I think this is a fantastic area to keep an eye out.
0: That is absolutely fascinating. I think, uh, you know, the opportunity, the avenues of targeting Uh, specific drugs to specific genotypes and then uh, obviously specific phenotypes as a consequence. That's very interesting. Thank you. So what do you think about the role of e-cigarettes and is there a role of e-cigarettes for our patients for smoking cessation?
1: I mean, I feel like this is a trick question. Is this a trick question or? (laughs) Well, I want your honest opinion, so tell me. Okay. So, uh, well, I think the, okay, without being too sort of Extreme. I think the fact is, e-cigarettes or vaping devices do have nicotine in them. We know that besides nicotine, they have other components which are equally injurious. We've been through the e-Valley pandemic, which is no, not. Pan, I'm sorry, I've got COVID brain here. I'm sorry. So um, the, the the whole a whole e-Valley um, sort of uh, rash of cases that happen, and we understand there's other dangers to it. So, but the nicotine component can be sort of helpful as a replacement. And there have been studies, right? So there's the Grabovich study from 2020. There's the NEJM Hadjik study from 2019, which showed that at one year, you know, uh, patients in the e-cigarette group were 18% abstinent as opposed to say nicotine replacement therapy, there was about 10% abstinence. But here's the challenge. In that same study at one year, 80% of the e-cigarette users continued to use the e-cigarettes whereas only 9% of the nicotine replacement therapy group, those patients were uh, still using their nicotine replacement. So what I'm trying to say is that the data is showing that maybe it could be helpful uh, as a consideration in adult patients who choose this route of um, cessation, but there's a high risk that we are replacing one evil for the other. And it's a highly unregulated industry, which is why we had that rash of cases because of harmful additives um, and components we don't even fully understand. So my suggestion to patients is if you can you know use standard nicotine replacement that is more advisable if they are uh, if they feel strongly about using e-cigarettes then i while i'm setting the goal towards quitting you know your conventional smoking with them i make sure to reiterate that we have to set a goal for quitting the e-cigarettes as well it can't just become a replacement
0: i agree i think you eloquently put it uh, when you said that are we just trading one evil for another and we have to be cognizant that you know these patients may become addicted to e-cigarettes so something that we should be keeping in the back of our mind when we discuss this thank you so much you know this has been very educational for me and you know i will be having a more informed discussion with my patients come next week so what do you think is one tip that you want to give our listeners and is there anything else that you want to add you know for our listeners and for us
1: so i'll close out with two things that i remind myself with uh, anything. Uh, Remember that an advice and involvement from a clinician, including physician, non-physician clinicians, has been shown to be more effective for abstinence at five months. So there's a study by Fior, and it's a fantastic article to read, actually. So it's not a one-time thing. Always remember their patients appreciate it, and there's data to show that our involvement actually makes an impact. So don't think about it in a one-time visit thing. Make sure you every opportunity you have, you visit this discussion with them. And keep trying to offer help and keep trying to help them understand the uh, you know importance of this aspect of their care and two we're all you know impacted by our environment, so we have to think about changing some sometimes the environment so remind them that if they have household contacts, parents you know caregivers, friends, coworkers who they usually go out to smoke with or who smoke around them uh, to you know suggest that you know sort of breaking that cycle, um, and, and either getting their loved ones help as well, or at least trying to create that separation so that they don't, it's, it's hard enough to quit smoking, but they don't, you know, feel pressured into, or, you know, because of, uh, people smoking around them, um, go back into, um, sort of smoking after they've made a quit attempt. So those are the two things I always remind myself and they are key to reinforce with our patients as well.
0: Thank you so much. I think this has been very educational for me. Um, And thank you again for taking our time out of your busy schedule, especially during the pandemic, to join us.
1: Thank you, Avi. And thank you, everybody, for the fantastic work you've been doing during
0: this pandemic. We're we're going to get through it together. Stay safe. Thank you again for tuning into another episode of the ABIP podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel and stay tuned for more episodes discussing unique and often controversial topics in the field of interventional pulmonology.